Hello guys, welcome to a brand new episode of The Film Angle. My name is Chris. And I'm Alex. I'm really glad that you could be here today, Alex, because I didn't think that you'd... I just kind of felt that you were going to like uh, close out on us last minute because I got a text from you last night that you weren't really feeling really well. So <laughs> I'm just in the audience so that they don't think, like, what's wrong with this guy? He sounds like a sniffling mess. No, you don't. Yes, a uh, little, little bit congested, a little bit congested, but I know we've got some breaks coming up probably with me going away. So I don't want to cause any more breaks than we need to because we've got two, uh, you know, pretty big films uh, from the BFI list to, mm-hmm. to go through today. Yeah, we don't usually double bill it, do we? No, no. But it's interesting. These films are actually like kind of work together very well. If, yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're very. They're almost quite similar in a way. Even though one's a documentary and one's a, a fiction film, they, they, they kind of have the same kind of stuff going on. But yeah, I just um, yeah, I'm here. Don't worry. No last minute uh, exits from me. Yeah, ready to go. I'm ready. <laughs> this is very much like. These two movies, if you're hearing us talk about them, and we're going to really try our best here because it's um, they're two very girthy films in terms of what they're trying to portray or come across. They're both very dreamy. Um, I think that's a commonality that they both share. Um, there's yeah. a sort of trans-like state that I felt, you know, at least a couple of times during both of these feature films that we watched. Um, you know, sometimes I, th- I think one more than the other. But yeah, we're, we're going to try our best to navigate both of these. I think they're both really interesting. I, I really loved the first one. I don't know if you want to delve straight into that. Yeah. Are we talking about Daughters of the Dust first? We are indeed. Cool. Then, yeah. Daughters of the Dust. So Daughters of the Dust is a, a poetic and lyrical reflection on the Gula culture of the coastal islands neighboring South Carolina and Georgia, where old African customs and rituals were still held and maintained well into the 20th century. This film is set in 1902 and centers around three different generations of women in a Gula family on the day that some will take the journey to the mainland of the US, uh, leaving their ancestral ways behind in exchange for a change of, you know, potential prosperity. Very um, nicely put, Chris. We should have you on the synopsises because I really messed up La Dolce Vita last week. I was like, it's Italian and it's. Uh, I do. It's, I do not. I do not blame you for the Dolce Vita because that film is sort of aimless by nature. Um, yes, but like, so is this. To be fair, <laughs> just you just put it so poetically, so nicely. I I couldn't have put it better myself. Well, maybe because I kind of fell for the spell of this movie, and it was mm. kind of e- easy for me um, in a way. Um, first off, off, straight off the bat, Alex. I mean, did you feel the same way as me? Did you? Were you kind of alone for the ride that Julie Dash, the director, writer, and producer of this film, was trying to take you on? Yeah, I, I think I was uh, for the most part. I um, when you said at the start, it's very dreamy. I kind of. It's one of those f- films that it's quite easy to, to zone out because of just how smooth and mellow it is. Um, mm-hmm. But at it's the very same, relaxing. T- yeah. very relaxing. But at the same time, I was completely intrigued by this kind of slice of life, uh, this culture uh, of you know the Gula women or the the Gula culture. I say Gula women because the film focuses mainly on the Gula women mm-hmm. uh, over the men. But the, the 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 culture of the Gula people, I um. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't aware of any of yeah. this. So uh, yeah, I was. I was really fascinated by that. 
and it is like you said it's it's almost like um it's like a historical document despite being fictional uh with very kind of uh like almost it's almost poetic isn't it it's, it's like a film with many poems and this kind of clash of uh past present and future coming together mm-hmm. and how the kind of uh the culture is affected within this timeline or multiple timelines <laughs> multiverse <laughs> multiverse of gula still existed in 1991 um yeah i'm ashamed to admit also that i had never heard of gula before both as a language and as a group of people and i was sort of just instantly enamored with what it must have been like to have lived in a community sort of reckoning with their you know recent history of slavery and the abolishment of slavery uh, dealing with their spiritual connection with their homeland and their ancestors, and while also somewhat very close in terms of geography to modern civilization, they chose to live a secluded life uh, that is more centered around the family unit. And I find that just really interesting, just just to sort of see these sort of people reckoning with the future and the past, at both at the same time. And yeah, that's because... sort of generational. It's the enticement of going to the States means that potentially you are going to lose your connection to the past uh, because of of kind of how well uh, this culture kind of remembered um, its time and its culture and its ancestry before, like you said, they uh, were stolen from their homeland and and, uh, were forced into slavery. Um, the idea of going to this kind of modern United States, even though I guess technically they kind of are, but the mainland United States uh, is kind of like this enticing place, despite their past. But yeah, it means they will potentially lose that connection that they have to their ancestry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It is I'm... worth saying as well, this uh, is the first uh, film directed by a black woman to receive a major theatrical lease. I say major, I think a, a national release in the states and this was 1991 yeah which is kind of ridiculous it's not a long time ago no it's not a long time ago uh just over 30 years yeah i i I think you're right i think it's staggering to think about you know i I believe that the subject matter of this film and the significant impact that it has with film fans and critics over the years makes it worthy of having that title of being that first you know heard to be the first one to do this of you know of coming from um a female African-American background. So, you know, of all the movies, yes, it's too late, of course, but of all the movies to do it, I think it's, you know, it's the right one. Yeah, it's quite it's quite the kind of first feature film uh, to get out there. And uh, unfortunately, Julie Dash um, never got around to making a second feature, or at least uh, has there been anything recent from her? I'm trying to have it, a think. I think she's like somebody who consistently works in <coughs> television. But... yeah. She You're got, right. She, she did a lot of TV movies um, mm. and documentaries, but I th- I think she said in a in a recent interview, I say recent, I think it was like 2017. She said like she was, I think she, it was there was nobody there to kind of promote yeah. female directors. Like she got a one, and that was all the industry kind of allowed her to have at the time. I think at the time that her her style of filmmaking, it's sort of this film has a non linear structure to it, and you know I I think that was. You know, producers maybe find that scary back in the time. I think that's her version of the story is that she wasn't commercial enough. But then you think about it in the context of of race and which this film is concerned around. If this was a white man with American auteur who had made this film, I'm sure he would have had many more stabs 
in the industry um, post the release of this film, considering its critical acclaim. So it feels more like she's a victim of, of, of circumstance and not her own sort of vision and power, because she seems like somebody who I'd certainly be interested in seeing, you know, what she'd be capable of in the future, because this film feels different enough from other things that I have seen that tackles these sort of issues. It's very ethereal, dreamy, like we said, that I'd be really interested to see how she'd tackle of her subject matter. I think she has a real artistic eye, first and foremost. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, 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 and fair play to her to kind of, you know, get the chance to make uh, a feature film and um, obviously shine a light on a, on an aspect of kind of African-American culture that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure within some circles uh, was, you know, of common knowledge, but for, you know, even today, like you and I had no idea until mm-hmm. watching this film. And uh, you can see why the kind of historical importance of this film uh, probably is why it's so high on the on the sight and sound list. It's not this fixation on you know the atrocities that have happened in, in, in slavery. There's a reflection on it and how significant it is to where these people are. You know, in, in 1902. But I, I think the the strength of this film it really captures both the allure of keeping away from Western civilization, the island of Saint Helena that they live on, is shot as if there are only ever sunrises and sunsets, which is like very evocative, not only of the end and the beginning of a new chapter, but also in registering the island as this sort of self-contained paradise for this family and their neighbors. There's a real comfort in the familiar and the world beyond these young women who are deciding to leave is while definitely hyped and bolstered up by their friends and cousins who come back to visit and they're all dressed up in their, you know, the Victorian regalia and they, they look so beautiful. It's still uncertain as to what awaits them. And that's what it sort of boils down to. Daughters of the Dust is a film about people who have never really felt like they belonged anywhere, but they're trying to belong somewhere. And the, the commonality they have is the strength of their, their lineage and their, and their family together. And it really, I think, you know, to quote Vin Diesel, I think family is 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 the core is the core center of this film. I'm sorry, I, I couldn't was come up with a better such, parallel. That was such a, a beautiful way of putting it, Chris, until the very end there. <laughs> Punctured it with some with some low bri that's some furious talk. I loved it though. I feel way too ill to kind of uh, I have I have no way of, of, of kind of bouncing off your, your amazing words right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Alex. Um, no, it's it, it's just, I, I was just really taken for the ride here. I just thought, I, I, I was really, you know, and the more I kind of stir and think about it, I, I think she did a terrific job considering how, you know, non-structured this film is. It's not really plot-driven. It's centered around one single day. And mm. You know, I, I think it just really is a different sort of flavor of African people that I have never seen before. That experience I have not been able to witness on screen. Mm. I agree. I agree. And I loved the kind of sprinkles of magical realism that were kind of thrown yeah. in there. The um, obviously the the framing device of the photographer coming to take pictures uh, Mr. Sneed, Mr. Sneed of this uh, of this kind of moment uh, as as they kind of consider moving over to the mainland, and obviously when he's taking these pictures, you see because uh, it's worth mentioning as well the narration is done by the unborn child. Yes. Uh, so 
you see the child in the pictures. I think there's a is the dad or the uh, or one of the kind of elders from so, the past is also in the picture at one point. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that merging of histories. Uh, like they're all in this kind of one moment together. Yeah, that that sort of framing device with the unborn daughter is quite is probably like the most most emotional aspect of the story. Um, you know, it's the mother is Ula and the father's Eli. And um, Ula had visited the mainland previously, I think it was mentioned, and suffered, you know, she was she was victim of a terrible um, rape incident with a white man who, who Eli suspects could be the father of their unborn child, you know, or he could be. It, it's kind of unknown. Um, the unborn child, a little girl, obviously, you said, narrates over the film. And we see, like, moments where she just sort of magically, like you said, in a realistic way, appears and disappears which, you know, she represents a future that can come and go at any moment. I really sympathize with Eli, who obviously loves his wife so much, but has to contend with the atrocity that's happened to her or whatever to carry on being the husband he wants to be and love their child unconditionally. This dilemma is really kind of hard even by modern standards, but I think in the context of, you know, uh, the racial context and the historical period that it's set in, that this particular human experience, I felt like I really felt for both of these people. It's a real sort of dilemma, you know. I, I think it's really interesting to follow that story along and just sort of see him kind of be molded into a better husband for for his wife. And there's this really poignant scene, I think, where he's po- he's posing for uh, a photo from Mr. Sneed. And the girl just appears beside him in the photo. And then she disappears. So it, again, it's this sort of what this can be and what it can't be. And I thought it was a really, you know, tragic but lovely moment shared by both of them, even though they didn't kind of know they were sharing it together. But mm. yeah, uh, yeah, I like this movie a lot. Yeah, <laughs> <I like it. laughs> yeah. You do you know? I I, I struggled with uh, an element of the slowness uh, and the dreaminess. So I did end up having to watch it in two parts. I put it on of an evening. And it's uh, it's it's like this very kind of uh, it's almost like a lullaby, isn't it? Like this beautiful music, beautiful imagery. I was mm. in a trance, and I found myself just about half an hour from the end, starting to just waver a little bit. My eyes were getting heavy, and I was just like, I I I like this film, and I need to give it the time. So like I was like, I'm as much as I'd love to have seen it in one sitting. Obviously, uh, thankfully, really good copy on BFI player as well. Was able to pause the bfi player and um and uh and come back to it the next morning and just kind of uh finish it off with the mm. yeah. the soundtrack's really like dreamy too yes I think i've seen of... a lot of people say it's a bit too much oh no i think it's so i think it's very of its time it's very yes. like i think i had to look at who the composer was <laughs> and i haven't really seen any other major works that he was involved with but I, I he worked on the music department for a lot of michael jackson albums you know that, that kind of comes through you kind of hear that little sort of synthy 80s early 90s yes. quality that you see in a lot of tv shows but it kind of just adds to the magical nature of this film yes. a little bit i think it, I, I actually thought it was a highlight of the film a major barrier that audiences have sort of mentioned mentioned over the years that has made them struggle with this film is sort of Julie Dash's commitment to having the entire film spoken in the Gula dialect. Mm. Um, did you struggle with this? Um, to, all right. So there is a um, there is a segment early on where it is subtitled. 
I'm right. I think that, I think that's a warming up exercise. Yes. So as I start, so like I, it almost helps. Uh, so I, I was able to see what it was saying, and I was reading the subtitles, and I was like, okay, that's not really. Uh, there's not much difference there. Like uh, it's it's said in an accent that's you know not familiar to me. Hmm. So I'm going to have to think yeah. about this a lot more. Uh, so yeah, to to be honest, I didn't feel like I came up upon it too much. Probably the odd word um, I might have misinterpreted or mistranslated. Yeah, I thought it only sort of added to the intrigue of these people, and it is a perfect summation of the themes in Daughters of the Dust. Their dialect is literally a split down the middle of that southern state drawl mixed with the African inflections. And I probably, in all honesty, understood probably, I would say I'm about 90-95% of, uh, of it I got. I think it depends. There are some characters that come in later in the story that are a little bit harder to understand. But even moments where certain characters were talking at once and it became a little bit more, I don't know, difficult to tune into exact phrases, I still understood the context of the stakes and the emotions um, of these characters, precisely when, you know, when Julie Dash is first and foremost a visual storyteller. And I think the choice at the beginning of the film where she uses that bit of sub, you know, subtitle is a, is a really good choice, you know, kind of and warms us up into the good dialect, but it's just a real sort of tribute to the people and, and being a really honest portrayal of, of, of them and, and, and their background. I don't know where a lot of the actors, um, in the story, were they of Gula descent? Uh, from what I read, I don't think they were. Mm, well, it's a really good job, like yes. performance-wise, from all of them, because it's it's not a diff- it's not an easy um, uh, language or you know dialect to sort of portray in in a, in a way that lends itself to acting necessarily. You know, I think they did a really amazing job. Give it a go. Go on, Chris. Give it a go. Oh no. <laughs> misappropriation (laughs) Uh, i will see i will save myself from that i'll end up sounding like somebody from cloud atlas (laughs) to be honest that is the correct answer i was uh uh, i was just gonna you were honey you were honey potting me i really was i really was was go on then go on then give it a go mate give it a go (laughs) right you obviously have a vendetta to, or a beef to squash with me, and we'll discuss that after the podcast. <laughs> um, one last thing, I think performances maybe aren't the thing you think about with this film. I, even though I just mentioned that everybody performs really well, but I think the standout in this film um, is the elderly matriarch of the peasant family, Nana, um, who is played by Cora Lee Day. She mm. sort of represents. She is the representative of old Africa their family ancestors and it pains her to see her grandchildren and her children go. Um, she doesn't want them to sort of leave her and leave her alone on this island, but she also doesn't want them to become overly Americanized to forget their history and the pride that they should have for their homeland of Africa. And just the raw emotion that she injects into these scenes, she's really magnetic and really just commands every scene. I think she makes everybody <laughs> else look like second grade. She's I, I, not, not that they are, it's just she commands it in such a theatrical, almost over-the-top way, but it really rings it, you know, rings the message home. And I think it was a performance I just wasn't really expecting, especially from a performer of that age. Yeah, no, she's, yeah, she was brilliant. Um, my other favourite uh, performance in this was uh, Barbara O. Jones, who played Yellow Mary. Yes, uh, yeah. Really, really thought that was a, a great performance as well. 
And she's and she's stunning to look at as well on screen. Really like magnetic sort of aura around her. I think it kind of I think they do that a lot with this film in general. Like everybody seems to have an aura about them. Yes. You know, it's, uh, it's just a very warm glow about the whole film. Honestly, like as much as you said, like maybe don't watch it in the evening when you're all tired and sleepy, but mm-hmm. you know what? sitting down, you know, having a nice hot drink and just kind of <laughs> bask in the warm glow and the kind of lyricism of the of the dialogue with this uh, very soothing mellow uh music. I'm I'm you know it was very cozy. It was very cozy. <laughs> you sometimes watch TV in your bedroom at night, right? Or do you yes. have like, you have the pro- projector? Yes. You know, like yeah. So it's like for me, I'm still that grown man who puts on <laughs> he falls asleep to spongebob and oh okay i thought you were I, saying like i'm a grown man i have a tv I don't know. <laughs> no no i think the projector is way more superior yeah. than no TV. to be honest i it's it, it's not it's not it's not a great projector let's check it out there it's a it's a, it's a cheap projector of amazon to watch tv of an evening in my bedroom i did watch this one on the tv this was a big tv one okay okay but <laughs> so so is Daughters of the Dust going to be like the sleepy Alex movie now? Are you going to put this on in the evening and have a, little, have a little kip to it? Could do. It could be the Spongebob of my, of my <laughs> world. <laughs> Last night, uh, for your information, it was the Spongebob Halloween episode. Sent me, to, sent me straight to sleep like a baby. Very good. Very good. <laughs> There's a little insight that people might lose respect for me now. Yes, um, <laughs> if you didn't know, Chris was a massive SpongeBob fan. Well, you know it now. But to be honest, we all are. Just I guess some of us just haven't seen episodes in a long time. Specific, specifically seasons one to three. <laughs> After that, it goes a little bit haywire. <laughs> so yeah, Daughters of the Dust. Um, a movie I kind of I don't know why I kind of thought I was going to struggle with. You know, reading other reviews online, but. I really, really enjoyed this. I thought it was a really cool experience. I thought I learned a lot from it. And I was emotionally invested in this sort of like this one-off film. Obviously, it is a one-off film because Dash, you know, unfortunately hasn't been making as much work of late. But yeah, I, I'm really glad to have caught up with it. It's, it's, it's going to stick with me for a while. That's good. I um, Yeah, I don't think I loved it as much as you did, but I, I did enjoy uh, its kind of historical significance. I like the fact that it, it, it kind of uh, was a lesson in a culture I wasn't aware of. I liked its kind of poetic and musical nature. I loved how cozy it was. That is, yeah, that's my summary. I uh, I was a little bit worried about the next film that we're going to see, and how, <laughs> or, or, or saw, should I say, and how uh, I would um, react to that, especially after this film. So shall we move on to uh, Sans Soleil? So, yes, Sans Soleil, uh, 1983 documentary film directed by Chris Marker, who was the director of the short film that we watched previously and recently, Le Jeté, uh, of which we both really enjoyed, I think. Loved that film, yeah. So I was intrigued to see uh, his documentary film here, uh, which is uh, the kind of... It is Chris Marker's own uh, words and narration, despite the fact that he himself does not does not narrate it. He almost pushes himself away from it. But again, this is why I'm not as good at summaries as you are. Uh, but it's basically <laughs> the, the thoughts of a, of a world traveler 
who kind of goes on about <laughs> time and memory uh, and kind of this kind of uh, world of images that he's captured on his travels, uh, along with kind of um, images from, from fictional films. And uh, yeah, it, it, the main kind of location is Japan. Uh, but it also yeah, covers yeah. a couple of other uh, places as well, Iceland and San Francisco being uh, a couple of them. But the main kind of uh, musings and thoughts and philosophical uh, kind of meanderings happen in the kind of culture of Japan. And uh, I won't lie, Chris, I won't lie. I, sh- <laughs> I struggled a little bit with this film. I struggled a little bit. Uh, I-, I felt that up to about... 50% through the runtime. I was like, okay, I'm on top of this thing. I'm on board. I'm on its wavelength. Then it just got a little bit of a barrage of thoughts and musings, almost to the point I was a little bit inundated with things to ponder and think about. That, And it was all moving so quickly that I didn't have enough time to really kind of reflect on each chapter. As it, I mean, each no. chapter in this is probably about five minutes apiece. And it, it, it jumps and jumps and jumps through things where I, I, I'm sure there's such amazing nuggets of, of inspiring and poignant thoughts and feelings about the world and how memories and how we lose memories and how that's sort of interconnected with, you know, in a global spectrum and how it relates to history and war. But it was just too much to keep up with. I don't know. There is uh, Florence DeLay who narrates this film, depending on which version you're watching, I didn't realize, so actually I finished the film, that there are in fact four versions of it. Yes, um, and there is an English language one, because I imagine you watched the same as me, which was the uh, original French yes, language one with yeah. subtitles. Obviously. It's also in Japanese and German, I believe. But yeah, there is an English version, but I would, I would like to revisit it again, maybe in English, and just to see if I can kind of enjoy those visuals a little bit more. I'm not somebody... We're both people who are really used to watching subtitle films. I think probably about... 50% of the films we watch in a year are probably subtitled and we're no, we're no stranger to sort of digesting that material. But I think there's such density kind of thrown at you on the screen at, at each moment, uh, both visually and sort of lyrically that you're kind of trying to keep up with both. And maybe sort of the musings are kind of getting lost and di- diluted in, in the process. That's kind of how I felt. Yeah. I, I felt at times like I was just reading things, but I wasn't really processing them. Exactly, and yeah, yeah. I'm the same as you. If I enjoyed it more, I would maybe seek out the English language version. But I did, <laughs> I did think that like I, I thought it peaked quite early on. Mm. Um, there's some really great stuff at the start, and I think probably one of the, and I believe this is probably one of the more iconic moments is when uh, our narrator is kind of talking about like uh, I don't know why at film school they tell you not to look at the camera, and then you have these kind of faces in. Yes. Uh, like uh, it's like a fish market almost of these women who kind of are, are looking at the camera and some trying not to look at the camera but looking up at it and he captures these uh, kind of beautiful moments yes and kind it's of Cape, ponders Cape Verde, this part of the film is taking place in yeah 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 that's really poignant yeah it, it's sort of this sort of exchange between you know noticing how you know documentaries how subjects kind of pretend that they aren't on camera and then there's a sort of exchange that kind of happens between the documentarian and, and the subject and it's some interesting moments there i i kind of enjoyed it when it was kind of focused on japan and not bouncing between you know six different countries at the same time i felt mm-hmm. like i was able to sort of focus in 
on the on the dreamy memory aspect of it i really enjoy the scene where it's focused on a train journey and the camera is looking at is a collage of individuals sleeping and, and kind of mirroring that with what perhaps maybe their dreams might be in that moment you know it's, it's quite playful a little bit self-indulgent perhaps but it's playful and, and you know it's enjoyable in that respect but um yeah, I kind of have a bit of a complicated relationship with this film. Um, I think the Jeté, um, which really was razor focused on what it was trying to do, but still being very dreamy at the same time. There are moments in Saint Soleil that are transient, and I think the first half of it really manages to do this. But yeah, it just becomes a little bit of a barrage of of a lot of moments intercut and sliced together, and some of them, you know, I kind of. We bring up animal cruelty a lot. Um, yeah. And some, you know, and there is a moment here. It's very, you know, it's rare. It's it's of an instant. But boy, does it kind of limb a shadow of the film. And I feel like it perhaps was maybe the most inconsequential part of the film in terms of lending itself to any sort of narrative significance. I think if anything, it, it just, it, for me, it was a wake up call. Uh, I was kind of zoning out a little bit. I'd gotten to the point where I was like, some of this kind of philosophical stuff seems a little bit too heavy in like the way of like, come on, dude, really? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> and then, hmm. so I'm starting to zone out a little bit and then boom, giraffe shot through the neck. Yeah. Uh, and like, and fountains of blood. Yeah. Not cool. Uh, yeah. Wasn't expecting that from what we'd seen previous to the film. Really yeah. enjoyed the penis museum. Uh, you know what? You know, you, you know what? <laughs> You know, I expected this. I expected this. When I was watching the film, I watched it stone-faced. I'm proud to say I watched it not even with a smirk. And I was thinking the whole time, Alex watched this and he was pissing his pants. <laughs> I mean, there was no one else in the room, so I guess I didn't get like... Like, the reaction wasn't as big as maybe you imagined it to be. But if you were in the room... There was a grimace at least. If at you were, If you were in the room... A lot of comments would have been made, but yes, uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It peaked at the penis. <laughs> I don't know even what to say. Or, or yeah, or there's, ta- you know, when you you watched the film before me, and then you texted me that you know beware, there's um, you know there's, there's a scene of animal cruelty again. Yes, I was like, okay, I I thought it was going. You were talking about the moment with the taxidermy animals having sex with each other. Yes, um, <laughs> I was like. Is this cruelty? I was like, okay. <laughs> so I was, I was really shocked. I thought it was over and done with by the time the draft came. Well, this thing, I, I always question how much to tell you on these things. I like to warn you off because I, you know, I think uh, we both kind of would have preferred more warning with uh, Tuki Buki when we watched that. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. So I was, I was considering whether to say like look away when you see the giraffe but at the same time like is that, that's kind of taken away from the film like that moment is there to kind of puncture through and kind of uh, and like i said it gave me a wake-up call mm-hmm. uh kind of got my attention back uh but apart from that i didn't really see the point in that <laughs> like i didn't like obviously he didn't shoot the giraffe this is a stock film and, and yeah. yeah he's gone out of his way to kind of find that footage it's not great i didn't want to see it I've yeah. seen it. My mum loves giraffes, so I don't. Uh, I wouldn't recommend she watches. Not a strong film. recommend. Not a strong recommend on the giraffe front. A light recommend. No. 
No, wait, wait, no wait, not for wait, my mom. Wait for a sale or heavy discount. <laughs> <laughs> not um, for my mom. Not for my mom. But uh, yeah, for, yeah. For, for, for others uh, who want to kind of complete the list, see a film that's very highly regarded as a documentary, then sure. But for me, I don't know. This, do you know what? The whole time I was thinking was, do you know who would have done this better? I think. And maybe that's a horrible thing to say, but Agnes Varda would have done this better. It would have been cheerier. It would. I enjoy her thoughts on things a lot more than I enjoyed Chris Marcus' thoughts on things. Well, it's a shame. I, I don't know where I'd stand with him because I, I was such a big fan of Legette, but you know, maybe he's better when he's restricted. I need to watch more of his films. I, I, I think he's he sort of he comes from that French New Wave period. He's sort of in line with guys like Godard. But um, yeah, one person who really does love this film is Kirsten Johnson. I know we mentioned Camera Person a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Um, she is really, she's, she, this is one of her favorite films of all time. And uh, Yeah, I can see that because Camera Person is almost quite similar in that way where it's footage from what she's documented through her life as a, as a, as a camera person. Uh, and um, I can't remember. It's been a while since I've seen that film. Was there narration with that film, or was it just kind of footage spliced together? I remember it being footage, and like yeah, there, the... there's there's a lot of moments where she's interviewing people or talking yes. behind the camera, behind the camera, and it's you know it's done in a very kitchen sink way. But yeah. I don't feel like there was overly you know it, it's an unconventional documentary. It's not a talking head thing. Yeah. So maybe maybe um, you know she she took the lesson of like less is more. Uh, whereas I feel like Chris Marker just doesn't. Well, it's not him again, but I guess it is his writing. So yeah, Chris Chris Marker doesn't let up. I, it's just I, it's constant dialogue throughout the whole thing, pretty much. I do think his dialogue is very eloquent. I think if I was to read it in a in a book of poems, I would find a lot to bookmark and and highlight because there are some he has a way with words. I will say that. Yeah, even reading... there are certain elements of this film I I agree with. There were certain. My phrases, I wish I could uh, recall them. Uh, there were times when I was just like, this is a little wanky. But <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time you've ever said that. I just, I don't know how else to put it. I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> Letterbox quote, a little wanky. <laughs> it's just, I was trying to find the right word for it. I was trying to do it earlier and I was kind of like going around it, but it's the only way I can just... Yeah, but... yeah. So some of it brilliant, like when we're watching uh, the footage of um, people asleep on a train yes. and kind of sleeping on a bus, and he's thinking about what their dreams must be, and then it splices in kind of Japanese uh, pop culture and films. I like this idea of kind of like creativity comes from banality, like all that kind of stuff. I love, and like I said, but again, mm. this is all within that kind of probably first half an hour. Yeah, yeah, it could have been a good short film. I, like Legetti was. Yeah, I think there are a few. Like, there's some quotes to take away from it. I think that opening, the opening shot where you know we're spending most ninety percent of this film we're spending in Japan, um, or or off the west coast of of Africa later on in the film. But we start off with um a stock footage of three children in Iceland in 1970. Well, like these Aryan, almost looking children, and they're and they're you know the most Icelandic looking children you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> um, yeah. Walking down the road, and and he's he, he struck he's mentioning the cinematographer that is being narrated through this. Yeah, it's a little bit of a contrived um, framing device, 
but he's explaining that you know he's trying he tries to capture joy or convey moments through cinematography to an audience but struggles to make the audience con- continue to latch on to what he is feeling in the moment so he after the, he shows the footage of the children he intercuts it with five to ten seconds of blackness just a screen yeah. of blackness saying that you know if people can't see the light then at least they will see the dark and then they will see the light so i you know I, yeah, it's quite poignant and quite <laughs> quite french yeah um, and in, it's in at the way. start <laughs> and it's at the start and maybe you know maybe that moment where we were reminded of it with the with the with the killing of the giraffe maybe that's what they were going for um that's me stretching to be honest um you know that moment does come an hour and 10 minutes after that moment so there's a lot of that too and and by the end of it there's a lot of these sort of thermal desaturated um clips of japanese television or war footage where you're trying to kind of sort of like a dream when you're trying to recall and, and clamor your way through it and find you know the meaning behind an image but that became a little bit overabundant too where i was a little bit exhausted by it at that moment and you know it, I, that didn't go away i continued to get more exhausted as, as the thing went on it's a shame i mean maybe it's because i was you know keeping up with the really fast-paced narration I will I will one day revisit this in English and maybe I will feel differently. Maybe it might take away from it. Who knows? You know, mm-hmm. maybe it might even have a worse experience. Sometimes certainly- French does sound very, very romantic and very good, doesn't it? Like the French have a way of putting things where obviously we don't understand it, but when you see it on a subtitle, you're like, oh, very good, very good. <laughs> I, I, I think the thing is I'm trying to get at is that you're trying to process so many cultures through the lens of another culture. So it, it becomes a real like lesson in your own sort of mental fortitude that I'm trying to tap into an exploration of the world through a country that I do not live in and a language I do not under, I understand. And, you know, and perhaps maybe having that filter sort of narrowed by just having it with English might improve that a little bit more yes i know i agree and also because the images are so striking you are naturally looking down at the subtitles and then back up to the image so there's an element of that um but you're right like we are watching uh, a french language film talking about japanese culture um sometimes so there's going to be a disconnect naturally. yeah there's a disconnect sometimes slightly ignorantly but for the most part uh, <laughs> yeah, eloquently so, sometimes racist remarks come up yes yeah i was uh, slightly uh, taken back by that but uh yeah it's interesting yeah weird weird i just yeah i just didn't know what to make of this film at the end of the day um i started to zone out and, and when i tried to recall certain parts of the film like i it's said right. it's mainly the it's start like of the film <laughs> it's kind of like <laughs> a dream when you're trying to recall certain moments and you just can't quite tap into what even the moments that worked, why they worked. Yeah, I can't remember all the phrases uh, as well as you seem to have with a couple of moments that really stuck with you. Uh, Yeah, for me, it was cat sanctuaries, women looking at the camera, penis museum, and a giraffe being shot. Those were the kind of the the moments (laughs) I remembered. A monkey's in missionary position. (laughs) Oh, yes, yeah. See, I I, I keep forgetting about the taxidermy part, which is strange, right? The penis is lasting. Gave me a more lasting impression. Uh, well, I think they're equal. <laughs> they are equal. I think I like the penis that was dressed up like a man. 
I'm gonna just cut. I'm gonna cut that as a soundbite. And, uh, and just, I like the but penis my, that looks like a guy. Every time you message me, the ringtone is just gonna be. I like the penis. I like the bit with the penis. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm conflicted. I'm sure people probably listening can tell. Um, there are moments I liked. I think first half I was like, "Yep, I'm all in," and then I think it just became a little bit more enjoyed enjoyed its own musings too much and mm. it came across as a little bit you know i don't like to use the word because we're dealing with our cinema and we, we like to keep an open mind especially you know discovering the bfi list i feel like we're open-minded individuals but this did feel like the one time so far that i felt that pretension might have been kind of overtaking the project yeah i don't personally feel this film should be on the list and uh, I had a really strong reaction to The Gleaners and I. And I know it's silly to compare it to the one other documentary film so far on this list, but Gleaners and I should be up there. I had such a strong emotional reaction to that film that I just I felt kind of empty and cold here. I think The Gleaners and I benefits from having more positive impact on our world as well, watching it. I think it's, it's something where I learned like, about a group of people and I felt a warmth to those people and the documentarian behind it and this i feel like <laughs> um i feel chris marker is a really eloquent guy uh, but there is a coolness to the film too yes and a wankiness <laughs> uh, it was a bit wanky <laughs> uh, i think that's it i don't think i have anything else to say about this film no, i think it was a really no. interesting double bill i think they are sort of connected thematically if well you they both push for it they both kind of capture a, a, a culture mm. and a period of time <laughs> they're both kind of poetic in their kind of way of going about it yeah um i, I feel like I, I feel at a depth <laughs> with both of them uh, or out of my depth with both of them i don't uh, think you're out of your depth with daughters of the dust i think but uh, yeah no, we, no. We, yeah we, we if, feel similar if i was to recommend any uh, I'd recommend Daughters of the Dust. And yeah, I can understand, despite, you know, if it was, I don't think I would put Daughters of the Dust on my personal top 100 favorite films of all time, but I can fully understand why it's on the list, uh, the BFI Sight and Sound list. I can't find, you know, the deep down why this one's on here so much. I, I think maybe it's the idea of like this was maybe an inspirational film for many because this idea that you could just like pick up a camera and travel and then just kind of like write these kind of essays mm -hmm. uh, about your travels and connect them together like i could go back and probably go back through my old holiday footage i have you know hours and hours of footage of me at disneyland uh florida in 2014 maybe I could make a travelogue maybe I could make a travelogue film out of that you know back when I had a mop of hair and my teeth were too big for my head a mop <laughs> of hair you have more hair than you've ever had in your life yes well yes but it's not a mop anymore it's like a it's, it's a more thought out uh, Qui-Gon Jinn uh, head of hair rather than just like a bowl cut okay I'd love, I'd love to see the return of the bowl cut you're not going to. You're not going to. You're never going to see that ever again. <laughs> uh, well, no, no. It was a it was a pleasure catching up with you, Alex, talking about these two films. I, th I think mm. uh, you know they weren't they weren't easy films. I wouldn't recommend them to everybody. Um, no, you know these are these are as like a lot of films on this list. They are 
make sure you got a liter of coffee beside you at all times um they it will help enhance your experience <laughs> yeah yeah i agree i agree but no i, I would say dollars of dust really, really enjoyed sans a little bit more tricky for me um probably one of the lower moments of this list so far unfortunately unfortunately so yeah which is a shame because obviously we really liked Le Jete and I think that's a worthy short film on the list. So, you know, you win some, you lose some, Chris Marker. Uh, not that he cares. Uh, he died in 2012. So. <laughs> Certainly doesn't care. I don't feel bad anymore. Next week. Uh, so next week's episode, we are returning to a... I was going to say modern release. A new release. Uh, a new <laughs> yeah. release in cinema. Woohoo! Uh, and another note, the writer strikes are now over, or about to be over, uh, so we're just waiting to see if the Screen Actors Guild are going to follow the same way, and the cinema might be back on track, baby, bearing in mind that they get a good deal, and the studios aren't screwing anyone over. Anyway, <laughs> a new yeah, release. It feels, like we've, it feels like it's been a while since uh, we've had a new release in the cinema that we're both actually quite excited for. And that is uh, Gareth Edwards' The Creator, a film we're both excited for. And then, Chris, I don't know if you're going to be able to get around to seeing the next BFI list before our next recording. Mm, I'm, I'm putting in a lot of homework for Saw, of all things. This is the world we live in now, that Saw is coming out, and like that's what we've got to be excited about. So but... you're, you're going to uh, watch Saw over Jean-Luc Godard's Contempt. We'll see. We'll talk. We'll leave our listeners in suspense for now. But okay, but Wednesday's the Wednesday's the deadline, and I will try my darnest to fit everything in. Well, I forgot to say, Fritz Lang is in contempt. Oh, he plays himself. I just thought that was interesting. It is a director of uh, you know Metropolis, which we recently spoke about in a BFI science sound film. So he's yeah. got to be really old in that. Yeah. He is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, yeah, not my blind spot, uh, but your blind spot. And I will uh, catch up with it to remember my thoughts on it. But I do think it is one of uh, Jean-Luc Godard's best films. <laughs> the emphasis on the Jean. I think you it's just, it's it. Just got, it's a great name, isn't it? Jean-Luc. Jean-Luc Jean Godard. Just think of Jean-Luc Picard, though, because I'm a Star Trek nerd. Yeah, see, I don't. It'll always be my Jean-Luc. Yeah, see, Godard is my Jean-Luc. <laughs> Battle of the Jeans. There's a great moment in uh, Faces Places whenever you get around to watching that with Agnes Varda. And she calls, uh, she's like, Jean-Luc, Jean-Luc, you little rat. <laughs> <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds right up Varda's Literally uh, talking about uh, Godard as well. Brilliant, brilliant. No, I'm looking for. I need to watch Faces Places. I'm certainly coming off the gleaners and I. It's a, it's a must watch. Yeah, I think we're gonna have to do like an Agnes Varda uh, marathon or deep dive at some point after this list, uh, just because yeah, uh, brilliant, the brilliant film that we've signed up for. <laughs> but yes, Gareth Edwards, the creator. Are we gonna be? Because I think we're probably quite similar on him, where we've always been excited for his films because they think... look amazing, and then they usually yeah. let down a little bit by the script. I think he his movies look amazing, but. The I don't know. Does he usually he usually writes on his own films, right? I think and so. I I think they are usually laced heavily with tropes that you know tend to kind of uh, are kind of what we've seen before and repetitive. I'm kind of fearing that a little bit. The creator, I think visually it looks amazing, but you know 
there's elements in these in this trailer I can see. I've seen so many of her films. So hopefully he does enough to make it feel injected with some sort of new sci-fi breath of fresh air. But yeah, again, I'm excited to see something that's new and original in this genre yeah. that doesn't come from any sort of source existing IP. So, yeah. you know, respect for getting the film like that made on screen. It looks beautiful. So I'm really excited. So come back next week for our thoughts on that. Uh, but yeah, that has been uh, the film angle for this week. Uh, you can find us on Instagram and TikTok at The Film Angle. Uh, you can rate and review us on all podcast platforms. Always really helpful. So please, please, please give us a five star <laughs> review. You can't uh, see him. He's on his knees right now. We're, we're not desperate. Please, what one five stars equals <laughs> me feeling better. Exactly. You can't put a price on that, right? Can't put a price on my health. He, he feels. You feel better. I feel better. I've got a cold because we haven't had a five-star review in a long time, so come on. His essence is running out. Each time, each day that passes, my nostril closes slightly more. I think that's more of an incentive to the listeners to not read than anything. Oh, I don't want to God. see that nose collapse. Oh, God. <laughs> <sighs> Hopefully I'll be better as well on the next recording. But yes. Anyway. Uh, that has been the film angle. Like I said, my name is Alan. My name's Chris. <laughs> Goodbye and good night. Bye-bye.